Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part two of my deep dive into the history of video games. As we continue our journey through gaming history, we find ourselves in 1986, a year of innovation, creativity, and growth. The industry, still recovering from the 1983 crash, saw Nintendo and Sega taking center stage, pushing the boundaries of what was possible and setting the standard for the gaming world. In the aftermath of the crash, Nintendo and Sega rose like phoenixes to redefine the gaming landscape. The Nintendo Entertainment System and Sega Master System were locked in a heated battle for console supremacy, each vying for gamers' hearts and wallets. As competition intensified, so too did the drive for innovation, with both companies striving to create groundbreaking experiences that would captivate players for years to come. 1986 was a year of creative triumph, with developers exploring new possibilities in game design and storytelling. Their iconic titles redefined what games could be, incorporating deep narratives, memorable characters, and intricate worlds that challenged and delighted players in equal measure. The gaming landscape of 1986 not only marked a turning point in industry recovery, but also had a profound impact on the future of game design. The bold, inventive spirit of that year still echoes through modern gaming, inspiring developers to push the envelope and create experiences that resonate with players on a deeper level. So as we delve into the vibrant world of 1986 gaming, let's ponder these questions. How did the trailblazing companies of the time, like Nintendo and Sega, shape the industry we know today? What can we learn from their successes and struggles? And most importantly, how do the creative leaps and bounds of 1986 continue to influence the way games are developed and experienced in our current gaming landscape. The Legend of Zelda, a launch title for the Famicom, would go on to launch one of the biggest gaming franchises in the history of the industry. Today, Zelda is a household name, with a lucrative business around toys, statues, soundtracks, and even concerts. But back in 1986, it was just another toy in the toy aisle. And Nintendo had to resort to bizarre raps and strange commercials of men creeping in the dark, making Zelda noises to get any attention at all. It's the legend of Zelda and it's really rad. Those creatures from Ganon are pretty bad. Octorox Tech Tech's levers too. But with your help, our hero pulls through. Yeah, go Link, yeah, get some. Awesome! One of the game's most significant contributions to the industry was its introduction of a battery save feature. This was the first game with a battery in it, allowing players to save their progress. This might seem like a small thing today, but back then it was huge. It meant that games could be longer, more complex, and more immersive, paving the way for the epic, sprawling games we enjoy today. The Legend of Zelda was a commercial success selling one million copies on its first day. This meant that almost half of all NES owners bought one, making it the first game for the NES to sell over a million copies. This success helped lay the groundwork for involved non-linear games in fantasy settings, such as those found in successful RPGs. This trend didn't just stop with the initial success of The Legend of Zelda. It continued to follow the franchise into the future, 
shaping the landscape of fantasy gaming. A prime example of this is the release of The Breath of the Wild, achieving a market share greater than 100%. This means that the game sold more copies than there were consoles to play it on, a testament to its immense popularity and the anticipation that had built up around its release. Despite this, Miyamoto, the game's creator, did not consider Zelda an RPG, but rather a real-time adventure game. He was more interested in preserving the live feeling of the game, something he felt was better conveyed through action games. This is partially why The Legend of Zelda is often overlooked as a spiritual forerunner in the modern action role-playing game genre. While it lacked key RPG mechanics, such as experience points, it had many features in common with RPGs. Metroid was a game that dared to be different, a game that broke the mold and set new standards for what a video game could be. We can't discuss Metroid without mentioning its iconic protagonist, Samus Aran. You see, Samus was one of the first female protagonists in a video game, breaking the mold of traditional male heroes. This was a bold move in 1986, and it paved the way for more diverse and inclusive representation in gaming. Today, we see a wide range of characters and protagonists thanks to trailblazers like Metroid. Now let's talk about the game itself. Metroid was a pioneer in the action-adventure genre merging elements of platforming, shooting, and exploration. The game's non-linear design encouraged players to explore its vast, interconnected world, discovering new abilities and secrets along the way. This was a departure from most contemporary games which forced the player to scroll the screen in one direction. Metroid, on the other hand, encouraged players to retrace their steps and explore every nook and cranny of the alien world. This design choice created a feeling of desperation and solitude, a feeling that you were truly alone in a hostile alien world. The sense of isolation was further enhanced by the game's innovative use of power-ups. Following The Legend of Zelda, Metroid helped pioneer the idea of acquiring tools to strengthen characters and help progress through the game. Until then, most ability-enhancing power-ups offered only temporary boosts to characters, and they were not required to complete the game. In Metroid, however, items were permanent fixtures that lasted until the end. In particular, missiles and the ice beam were required to finish the game. This added a new layer of strategy, as players had to carefully manage their resources and decide when and where to use their power-ups. This innovative approach to gameplay would go on to inspire a whole subgenre of games known as Metroidvania, which includes modern classics like Hollow Knight and Ori and the Blind Forest. One of the standout features of Metroid was its groundbreaking use of music and sound design. The game's haunting, atmospheric soundtrack, composed by Hirozaku Tanaka, added to the game's immersive experience and set it apart from its contemporaries. Tanaka's score, with its emphasis on silence, created a claustrophobic atmosphere that added to the game's sense of isolation. Metroid's innovative use of music in storytelling has had a lasting impact on how games use sound to evoke emotion and build atmosphere. Metroid's open-ended exploration, item-based progression, and backtracking mechanics have become staples in modern gaming. This design philosophy continues to inspire developers and can be seen in recent titles such as Control and The Outer Wilds. Metroid broke new ground 
in storytelling, game design, and representation, setting the stage for the evolution of gaming that we continue to witness today. Castlevania was a game that dared to be different. It was a platformer, yes, but it was also a horror game, a genre that was relatively unexplored in the gaming world at the time. The game was divided into six blocks of three stages each, with a boss character waiting at the end of each block. This structure gave the game a sense of progression and scale that was rare in platformers of the time. The game's protagonist, Simon Belmont, was a departure from the typical video game heroes of the time. He wasn't a plumber or a soldier, he was a vampire hunter, armed with a whip and a determination to rid the world of evil. This made for a unique and engaging gameplay experience as players had to navigate the castle's treacherous corridors, battling monsters and avoiding traps. But what truly set Castlevania apart was its atmosphere. The game was directed by Hitoshi Akamatsu, a self-proclaimed admirer of cinema who approached the project with a, quote, film director's eye. This cinematic approach was evident in the game's visuals and music, which were designed to create a sense of dread and suspense. The castle was a character in its own right, with its dark corridors and eerie silence adding to the game's sense of foreboding. The game's music, composed by Kanoyu Yamashita and Sano Terashima, was a masterpiece in its own right. The haunting melodies and chilling sound effects added to the game's gothic atmosphere, making the castle feel even more ominous and foreboding. But perhaps the game's most enduring legacy is the franchise it spawned. Castlevania became one of the most beloved series in gaming with numerous sequels, spin-offs, and adaptations. It introduced us to a host of memorable characters and locations, and it's the other part of that term you heard in Metroid, the Metroidvania genre, a style of game that combines the exploration of Metroid with the action and platforming of Castlevania. Dragon Quest, developed by Enix, was a pioneering force in the RPG genre. The game featured turn-based battles, character progression, and a simplified interface, elements that would become staples of the genre. The game's combat system was a departure from the real-time action that was common in games of the time. Instead, Dragon Quest opted for a turn-based system, where players and enemies took turns attacking each other. This system added a layer of strategy to the game, as players had to think carefully about their actions and plan their moves in advance. Character progression was another key feature of Dragon Quest. As players defeated enemies, they gained experience points, which allowed their characters to level up and become stronger. This system of progression gave players a sense of accomplishment and encouraged them to continue playing to see their characters grow and evolve. Despite these innovative features, Dragon Quest was not without its critics. Some players found the game's mechanics to be too simplistic, and the game's North American release as Dragon Warrior was met with less enthusiasm. However, in its home country of Japan, Dragon Quest was a commercial success, selling over 2 million copies and cementing its place in gaming history. One of the most enduring aspects of Dragon Quest is its influence on the RPG genre. The game's creator, Yuji Horii, was inspired by earlier RPGs like Wizardry and Ultima, but he wanted to create a game that was more accessible to a wider audience. With Dragon Quest, he succeeded in creating an introductory RPG that would serve as the gateway for many players into the genre.
Space Harrier, a third-person arcade rail shooter game developed by Sega, was a game that truly embodied the spirit of the mid-80s. It was a time of rapid technological advancement, and Space Harrier was right at the forefront, pushing the boundaries of what was possible in a video game. The game was originally conceived as a military-themed game played in the third-person perspective, but due to technical and memory restrictions, it was redesigned into a fantasy setting by Yu Suzuki. This was a bold move, but it paid off, resulting in a game that was unique and captivating in its own right. Space Harrier featured a protagonist named Harrier, who navigates through 18 distinct stages using a jet-propelled laser cannon to destroy various enemies in a surreal world. The game's world was composed of brightly colored landscapes adorned with stationary objects, creating a visually stunning and immersive environment for players to explore. One of the most innovative aspects of Space Harrier was its use of 16-bit graphics and scaled sprite technology, also known as superscalar technology. This allowed for pseudo-3D sprite scaling at high frame rates, with the ability to display 32,000 colors on screen. This was a significant leap forward in terms of graphical capabilities, and it set a new standard for what was possible in video games. The game's arcade cabinet was another standout feature. It was a cockpit-styled hydraulic motion simulator cabinet that tilted and rolled during play. This was referred to as a Taikan, or Body Sensation Arcade Game, in Japan. This added a whole new level of immersion to the game, making players feel like they were truly part of the action. In the realm of arcade racing games, OutRun holds a special place. Released by Sega in 1986, this game was a trailblazer in more ways than one. It wasn't just about speed and competition, but also about the joy of driving and the freedom of the open road. OutRun was the brainchild of Yu Suzuki, the creator of Space Harrier and a developer who wasn't afraid to push boundaries. Suzuki traveled to Europe for inspiration, soaking in the sights and sounds of the continent's diverse landscapes. He then spent most of the 10-month development period programming the game himself a testament to his dedication and vision. One of the most innovative aspects of OutRun was its pioneering hardware and graphics. The game utilized a sprite scaling technique known as superscalar technology to achieve its impressive 3D effects, the same technology used earlier on Space Harrier. This technology allowed for a level of graphical detail and smoothness that was unheard of in racing games at the time. The result was a game that didn't just look good, but felt immersive and lifelike. But the innovation didn't stop at the graphics. OutRun also introduced non-linear gameplay to the racing genre. Instead of a fixed track, players were given the freedom to choose their own path, with the game's goal being to avoid traffic and reach one of five destinations. This gave players a sense of agency and exploration that was rare in racing games of the time. The game's selectable soundtrack was another standout feature. Composed by Hiroshi Kawaguchi, the music was designed to enhance the driving experience, with players able to choose from a selection of tracks to accompany their journey. This was a novel concept at the time, and it added another layer of immersion to the game. OutRun was a critical and commercial success, becoming the highest-grossing arcade game of 1987 worldwide. It was also Sega's most successful arcade cabinet of the 1980s, a testament to its popularity and impact. The game's influence extended beyond the arcade, with its name even becoming synonymous with a popular music genre, which has since gone on to be known better as Synthwave.
Mega Man, a 1987 action platform video game developed and published by Capcom for the Nintendo Entertainment System, was a game that truly embodied the spirit of the late 80s. It was a time of rapid technological advancement, and Mega Man was right at the forefront, pushing the boundaries of what was possible in a video game. The game was produced by a small team specifically for the home console market, a first for Capcom, who focused previously on arcade titles. This was a bold move but it paid off, resulting in a game that was unique and captivating in its own right. Mega Man featured challenging platforming action, combined with a unique weapon-based progression system. The game features six side-scrolling platformer levels freely chosen by the player, and each level culminates in a boss battle against one of the robot masters that awards the player character a unique weapon. This system of progression was innovative for its time and it added a layer of strategy to the game that was not commonly seen in other platformers of the era. One of the most interesting aspects of Mega Man was its naming convention. Mega Man was originally called Rock Man, but his proposed name before that was Rainbow Battle Rock Man, due to his ability to change colors when armed with different weapons. However, copyright issues with the character named Rainbow Man on Japanese TV prevented Capcom from using this name. The series' naming convention may be musical concepts, but it's hard to deny the rock-paper-scissors convention in the name, too, especially when taking into consideration the game's design. Philosophically, the entire weakness chain system is based off of rock-paper-scissors, with there being no definitive best weapon, item, etc. Mega Man was steeped in Japanese culture. The character of Dr. Wily bears a resemblance to Albert Einstein, a nod to the rumors of Einstein's involvement in the creation of the nuclear bomb, which in Japanese culture paints him as an evil genius bent on world destruction. However, the significant inclusion of Japanese culture led to one of the biggest missteps from the original game, the original box art. The artwork for the US release of Mega Man was notoriously poor, featuring inconsistencies and oddities in the design that were hard to ignore. The artwork and the main character's name were changed for the US release due to cultural isolationism and the taboo nature of the anime-style artwork on the original Japanese cover. Yoshiki Okamoto, a key figure at Capcom, noted that they had to listen to the opinions of the marketing staff at Capcom USA about what was, quote, appealing and popular. Once Capcom agreed to change the artwork, the team was given an incredibly tight deadline. Nintendo needed the artwork within 24 hours, leading to an all-night effort to produce the box art. The release was less than stellar, but it was released out of necessity. Despite these early missteps, the Mega Man franchise has had a lasting impact on popular culture. There are over 30 cover bands dedicated to the Mega Man franchise, including The Megas, The Proto Men, and Mega Ran. In 2007, Random, aka Mega Ran, became the first rap artist to get a licensing deal for a video game character, further cementing Mega Man's influence on popular culture. Contra, a run-and-gun video game developed and published by Konami, was a game that truly captured the zeitgeist of its time. It was a period marked by a global shift in politics, a time when the world was grappling with the Cold War and its effects. Contra, with its plot set in the future where two commandos fight against the evil Red Falcon organization to save humanity, seemed to echo the real-world events that were unfolding throughout the 80s. 
In Nicaragua, rebel fighters called the Contra Revolucion, or Contras, were fighting against the communist Sandinista Junta. This notion of guerrilla fighters seemed to seep into the game designer's imagination. The game's title, Contra, was a nod to these real-world events, and it added a layer of depth to the game that was not commonly seen in video games. One of the most interesting aspects of Contra was its characters. The game's heroes, named Bill Riser and Lance Bean, were named after actors in the movie Aliens. Bill Riser is a combination of Bill Paxton and Paul Riser, while Lance Bean crosses Lance Henriksen with Michael Bean. This was a clever nod to popular culture, and it added a layer of familiarity to the game that made it more relatable to players. Another unique aspect of Contra was its use of an upright screen. Usually reserved for vertical shooters like Galaga or Konami's own Twin B, the upright screen was an unusual choice for a game with horizontally scrolling platform action. This design choice made the game stand out from other platformers of the era, and it added a unique challenge to the game that made it more engaging. Contra was also notable for its inclusion of the Konami Code, a sequence of button presses that would give the player 30 extra lives. While the Konami Code was first introduced with the home versions of Gradius, larger awareness of the code's existence in Konami's games grew significantly with its inclusion in the home version of Contra. This was a clever way to engage players and add an extra level of challenge to the game. Final Fantasy, a game that needs no introduction, but let's give it one anyway. Released by Square in 1987, this fantasy role-playing game was the first in what would become a legendary series. The game's plot follows four youths, known as the Warriors of Light, on a quest to defeat evil forces restore light to the crystals, and save their world. It was a commercial success, received generally positive reviews, and is regarded as one of the most influential and successful role-playing games on the NES. Now let's rewind a bit and look at the context. The year was 1987, and the video game industry was in a state of flux. The role-playing genre was still in its infancy, and Final Fantasy was one of the games that helped to popularize it. The game's success was a testament to the growing appetite for more complex, narrative-driven experiences in video games, a trend that would continue to shape the industry in the years to come. One of the most unique aspects of Final Fantasy was its combat system. It was menu-based, with the player selecting an action from a list of options such as attack, magic, and item. It was a departure from the action-oriented gameplay that was common in other games of the time. It added a layer of strategy to the game, forcing players to think about their actions and make tactical decisions. This move paid off. The combat system was praised for its depth and complexity, and it set a new standard for the genre. Another standout feature of Final Fantasy was its magic system. Spells were divided into two groups, white, which was defensive and healing, and black, which was debilitating and destructive. This added another layer of strategy to the game as players had to decide when to use their magic and which spells to use. It also added a layer of customization as players could choose which spells to learn and use based on their own playstyle. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of Final Fantasy was its world. The game takes place in a fantasy world with three large continents, and the state of this world is determined by the Four Crystals. This was a unique concept at the time, and it added a sense of scale and grandeur to the game. 
the world of Final Fantasy was a place of mystery and adventure, and it was a world that players wanted to explore. However, it wasn't all smooth sailing for Final Fantasy. The game was rushed in the later stages of development, leading to several errors and bugs. The blind status effect, for example, did absolutely nothing in the NES release due to poor coding. Despite these issues, fans appreciated the game's epic scope and ambition. It's a testament to the game's quality that it was able to overcome these issues and become a classic. Punch-Out! Developed by Nintendo in 1983 and released in 1984 is an arcade boxing game that became a top-performing arcade game in the United States. It's a game that's all about timing punches, dodges, and blocks to defeat the opponent. The game's development was a result of Nintendo's excess video monitors and the desire to create a boxing game that utilized the ability to zoom in and out of an object. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of a gamer in 1987. The video game industry was booming and arcade games were all the rage. Punch-Out! is announced for the NES. You've been going to the arcades and playing this game already for years and now suddenly you get to take it home. Punch-Out! was more than just a boxing game, it was a game that told a story. A game that introduced us to a cast of colorful characters. And a game that challenged us to think strategically. The game follows the journey of Little Mac, a young boxer from the Bronx, as he fights his way up through the ranks of the World Video Boxing Association. Each opponent Little Mac faces is unique, not just in appearance, but in fighting style and strategy. This means that players couldn't just button mash their way to victory, they had to study their opponents, learn their patterns, and time their attacks just right. One of the most unique aspects of Punch-Out! was its visual style. The game's developers took advantage of the NES's graphical capabilities to create large, detailed sprites for each of the game's opponents. This not only made the game visually striking, but it also served a gameplay purpose. The animations of each opponent provided subtle clues about their attack patterns, adding another layer of depth the game's strategy. Rather than using the D-pad to move Little Mac around the ring, the game used it to control his punches. This might seem like a small detail, but it had a big impact on the game's feel. It made the game feel more like a boxing match and less like a traditional video game, adding to the game's immersion and realism. In the context of its time, Punch-Out! was a game that stood out from the crowd. When many games were focused on action and adventure, Punch-Out! offered a different kind of experience. It was a game that combined the strategy of a puzzle game with the excitement of a sports game, creating a unique blend that was unlike anything else on the market. The second installment in the Legend of Zelda series was a bold departure from the first Zelda game, introducing side-scrolling gameplay and RPG elements such as an experience points system. This was a risk that Nintendo was willing to take, and it paid off, but it also reflected a broader trend in the gaming industry at the time. In the era of Zelda 2's release, sequels were expected to be different, to offer a new experience that distinguished them from their predecessors. This was a stark contrast to the approach of sequels today, where developers often aim to refine and expand upon the successful elements of the original game. The philosophy then was that if a sequel was too similar to the original, gamers might not buy it, perceiving it as merely more of the same. 
This led to a lack of cohesion in some game series, but it also fostered innovation and experimentation. This approach is exemplified by the transformation of Doki Doki Panic into Super Mario Bros. 2. Nintendo felt that the original Japanese version of Super Mario Bros. 2 was too similar to the first game, and too difficult for American audiences. So they reskinned Doki Doki Panic, a game with entirely different mechanics, and released it as Super Mario Bros. 2 in the West. Sequels had to offer a distinct experience to be successful, or so it was believed. Zelda 2 embodied this philosophy. It was a game that wasn't afraid to take risks, to challenge expectations, and to offer something new. From its side-scrolling gameplay to its RPG elements, from the introduction of Dark Link to the haunting presence of the deceased Ganon. Zelda 2 was a game that dared to be different. However, this approach has led to a mixed legacy for Zelda 2. Today, some view the game negatively, in part due to its difficulty and its departure from the formula established by the original Zelda game. Some critics, including prominent YouTubers, have expressed frustration with the game's challenging mechanics and divergent style. Yet it's important to remember the context in which Zelda 2 was created, a time when sequels were expected to chart their own path rather than follow in the footsteps of their predecessors. In this light, Zelda 2 can be seen as a product of its time, a bold experiment in game design that helped shape the future of the Zelda series and the gaming industry as a whole. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of Zelda 2 is its antagonist, Ganon. I've talked about this before and why I think Ganon in Zelda 2 is one of the best antagonists in gaming. In this game, Ganon is already dead but his presence is still felt throughout the game. His army is still at large, and they are trying to resurrect him using Link's blood. This adds a sense of urgency to the game, as every enemy you encounter is part of Ganon's army, trying to bring their master back to life. Ganon affects the world beyond just being cartoonishly evil or personally powerful. He has influenced the world so much that these enemies will throw their lives away just to bring him back no matter the cost. Fantasy Star blended elements of medieval fantasy and science fiction in a way that was truly groundbreaking. It was a game that didn't just play by the rules of the RPG genre, it rewrote them. Fantasy Star was a response to the burgeoning console RPG market, a bold move by Sega to stake their claim in a genre dominated by other industry giants. But rather than simply imitate what was already out there, the team behind Fantasy Star chose to innovate. The game featured predetermined characters, a departure from the blank slate avatars common in RPGs of the time. This allowed for a deeper narrative and character development, immersing players in a richly woven story that was as compelling as it was unique. The game also introduced 3D dungeon crawling, a feature that was revolutionary for its time. This added a new layer of complexity and immersion to the gameplay, challenging players to navigate labyrinthine environments in a way that was both thrilling and challenging. The game's ample animation, too, was a standout feature, bringing the world of Fantasy Star to life in a way that few other games of the time could match. But perhaps one of the most significant aspects of Fantasy Star was its protagonist, Alice. While not the first game to feature a female protagonist, Fantasy Star was the first to do so openly and unapologetically. Alice was a strong, capable character who stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with her male counterparts, a refreshing change from the damsel-in-distress trope that was all too common in games of the era. 
This was a bold move by Sega, one that challenged the industry's gender norms and paved the way for future female protagonists. However, the game's high retail price made it a difficult sell for some critics, and it faced stiff competition from other RPGs on the market. In the end, the game's enduring legacy speaks for itself. Fantasy Star spawned a series of sequels and is still remembered today as a landmark RPG that pushed the boundaries of what was possible in video game storytelling and design. 1988 was the year that things went from 0 to 60 in the blink of an eye. Nintendo and Sega were locked in an epic duel for gaming supremacy, delivering even more immersive experiences and cutting-edge technology to the masses. In fact, the gaming world was expanding beyond consoles and into other media, with Nintendo releasing the first issue of Nintendo Power, the must-read publication for gaming enthusiasts back in the day. But 1988 wasn't just about the big players. It was also a time when gaming communities began to flourish, bringing people together through a shared passion for pixelated adventures. Those early connections laid the foundation for the thriving global gaming community we know today. So as we crack open the 1988 time capsule, let's explore the social aspect of gaming and how it has evolved since then. How did those early gaming communities shape our modern online platforms and the way we interact on social media? And what role did these burgeoning connections play in the development of gaming as a whole? from the industry's offerings to the way we experience and share our favorite titles. Double Dragon 2 The Revenge is a game that took the beat-em-up genre to new heights. One of the most significant aspects of Double Dragon 2 is its two-player simultaneous play. This was a major innovation at the time, and it helped to make Double Dragon 2 a standout title in the arcades. The ability to team up with a friend and take on the game's challenges together added a new dimension to the gameplay, making it a more social and cooperative experience. This feature would go on to become a staple of the beat-em-up genre influencing countless games that followed. But Double Dragon 2 wasn't just about innovation, it was also about evolution. The game was initially developed as an upgrade kit for the original Double Dragon, but due to an increase in memory size, it evolved into a standalone game. This evolution wasn't just a technical upgrade, it was a creative one as well. The developers reused assets from both games, such as the character sprites and some of the levels, creating a sense of continuity and progression from the original game. The game's plot also deserves a mention. Double Dragon 2 sees the Lee brothers, Billy and Jimmy, seeking revenge for the death of Billy's girlfriend, Marion. This narrative added a sense of urgency and purpose to the gameplay, giving players a compelling reason to fight their way through the game's four missions. The game's narrative was simple, yet effective, creating a compelling reason for players to keep playing. The home versions of Double Dragon 2 were significantly different from the arcade version. The levels were redesigned, and the enemies were replaced with new characters. These changes weren't just cosmetic, they added depth to the game, creating a more varied and engaging experience for players. The home versions also introduced new gameplay features, such as the ability to pick up and throw objects adding another layer of strategy to the game. Double Dragon 2 The Revenge was more than just a game. It was a cultural phenomenon. It was a game that pushed the boundaries of the beat-em-up genre, introducing innovative gameplay mechanics and creating a rich, immersive world for players to explore.
Mega Man 2 took the action genre to new heights, introducing graphical and gameplay changes that became series staples. One of the most significant aspects of Mega Man 2 is its development process. The game was designed by a team of only eight people, which is incredibly small for a game of its size and scope. This is a testament to the talent and dedication of the team, as Mega Man 2 is widely considered to be one of the greatest video games of all time. The team worked concurrently on other Capcom projects, using their free time to develop the game. This kind of passion and dedication is something that's often overlooked in discussions about game development, but it's a crucial part of what makes Mega Man 2 so special. Is it any wonder they managed to make something widely called one of the best games of all time? The development crew allowed input from fans, including boss designs created by fans. This kind of fan involvement was relatively rare at the time, and it's a testament to Capcom's commitment to their community. It's also a testament to the power of the Mega Man fanbase, which has remained passionate and dedicated to this day. The game's soundtrack, composed by Minami Matsumai, is another standout feature. Matsumai's music is iconic and instantly recognizable, and it has helped to make Mega Man one of the most beloved video game franchises of all time. The soundtrack of Mega Man 2 is a perfect example of how music can enhance the gaming experience, creating a sense of atmosphere and immersion that elevates the gameplay. Mega Man 2 also introduced several gameplay innovations that became series staples. The game features eight stages to defeat the bosses, Dr. Wily's Robot Masters, and a fortress with six levels played linearly. Mega Man 2 introduced a new item, the Energy Tank, allowing players to refill Mega Man's health at any time, and a password system. These features added depth and complexity to the gameplay, making Mega Man 2 a more engaging and challenging experience. For a gamer in 1988, Mega Man 2 wasn't just a game, it was a defining moment in their gaming journey. Pool of Radiance, a role-playing video game based on TSR's advanced Dungeons & Dragons, is a shining example of the gaming landscape in 1988. Developed and published by Strategic Simulations Incorporated, it became the first episode in a four-part series of D&D computer adventure games marking a significant milestone in the evolution of role-playing games. One of the most remarkable aspects of Pool of Radiance is its setting. The game takes place in the Forgotten Realms, a fantasy setting that has since become one of the most iconic in the world of Dungeons & Dragons. This setting allowed players to immerse themselves in a world that was both familiar and new, providing a sense of continuity with the tabletop game, while also offering a fresh and exciting experience. Players could build a party of up to six characters, deciding the race, gender, class, and ability scores for each. This level of customization was quite advanced for the time, and it gave players a sense of ownership over their characters. It also added a layer of strategy to the game, as players had to consider the strengths and weaknesses of their party composition. The game primarily uses a first-person perspective, but during combat sequences, the display switches to a top-down video game isometric view. This gave players a clear view of the battlefield, allowing them to make strategic decisions about positioning and tactics. This blend of perspectives was a unique feature that set Pool of Radiance apart from other games of the time. 
Pool of Radiance was written by Tracy and Laura Hickman, authors of the popular Dragonlance novels. The Hickmans worked closely with SSI to create a game that was faithful to the D&D rules, and they also wrote the game's manual and several of its quests. This close collaboration between game developers and established fantasy authors was relatively rare at the time, and it added a level of authenticity and depth to the game's narrative. The game was a critical and commercial success, helping to popularize the CRPG genre and paving the way for future games like Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights. It was the first game built with the Gold Box engine, which would later be used for such games as Neverwinter Nights AOL. This engine was a major technological advancement, and it set a new standard for graphics and gameplay in role-playing games. Ghouls and Ghosts, the sequel to Ghosts and Goblins, follows the Knight Arthur on his quest to defeat Lucifer and restore the souls of those killed by him, including his beloved Princess Prinprin. It's a game that pushes the boundaries of what was possible in video games at the time. One of the most striking aspects of Ghouls and Ghosts is its gameplay. The game is a side-scrolling platformer, a genre that was incredibly popular in the late 80s, but Ghouls and Ghosts took this formula and added its own unique twist. Arthur, the game's protagonist, could attack in four directions, a significant enhancement from the previous game. This gave players more control over Arthur's actions and added a layer of strategy to the game. But the real game changer was the magic Golden Armor. When Arthur donned this armor, he could unleash powerful magic on his foes turning the tide of battle in an instant. This mechanic added a new level of depth to the gameplay and set ghouls and ghosts apart from other games in the genre. Another standout feature is its soundtrack. Composed by Tsukasa Masuko, the music of Ghouls and Ghosts is iconic and instantly recognizable. Masuko's compositions perfectly capture the eerie, haunted atmosphere of the game, and they've become some of the most beloved video game music of all time. The soundtrack is a testament to the power of music in video games, and is a key part of what makes Ghouls and Ghosts so memorable. The game was a commercial success, winning multiple awards and receiving critical acclaim. It helped to popularize the side-scrolling platform genre, paving the way for future games like Sonic the Hedgehog. But more than that, Ghouls and Ghosts was a technological marvel, a major advancement that set a new standard for graphics and gameplay in video games. 1989, a year that truly set the stage for the gaming industry's future. Visionaries stepped up their game, pushing the limits of creativity and showing the world that video games were more than just pixels and consoles. The release of the Sega Genesis reignited the flames of the console war, while PC games started to flex their muscles. It was also the year gaming broke onto the small screen, with the release of the Super Mario Bros. Super Show. This blend of animation and live-action segments introduced a generation of fans to a whole new way of experiencing their favorite gaming characters. The big screen wasn't far behind, with The Wizard, a film designed to market Super Mario Bros. 3 and Nintendo Power Gloves to North American audiences. From the Consumer Electronics show that unveiled a slew of new titles and peripherals to regional Super Dodgeball contests and collaborative marketing efforts by giants like Konami, PepsiCo and Ralston Purina, the gaming world was buzzing with activity. 1989 also witnessed some intriguing collaborations between gaming companies and non-gaming giants, like Nintendo 
and Fidelity Investments, teaming up to develop a home trading system for financial services. As we can see, the gaming industry was already branching out into new territories, laying the groundwork for the multi-platform experiences we now enjoy. As we venture into the dynamic world of the 1989 time capsule, let's consider these questions. How did the creative risks taken by developers pave the way for the versatile gaming experiences we have today? And how did the various platforms and media of 1989 contribute to the rich and ever-evolving gaming ecosystem we know and love? Tetris, the brainchild of Soviet computer programmer Alexei Pajitnov, is a game that truly encapsulates the spirit of 1989. This simple yet addictive puzzle game took the world by storm, becoming one of the most iconic and universally recognized video games in history. Its arrival on the Nintendo Game Boy in 1989 marked a turning point in the gaming industry, making it a fitting inclusion in our 1989 time capsule. The story of Tetris is as fascinating as the game itself. Pajitnov was inspired to create the game by watching the falling blocks of a construction site he saw outside his window. This seemingly mundane sight sparked an idea that would revolutionize the gaming industry. Tetris was originally released for the Electronica 60 computer in 1984, quickly becoming a hit in the Soviet Union. However, it wasn't until its release on the Game Boy in 1989 that Tetris became a global phenomenon. This transition from a local hit to a worldwide sensation is a testament to the universal appeal of Tetris and its ability to transcend cultural boundaries. The story of how the copyright was secured, how the sale of the game was approved by the Soviet Union, and the political backroom dealings that left the original owner without any profit until the 1989 version is a tale worthy of a movie. The concept is simple. Manipulate tetramino shapes to create horizontal lines of blocks without gaps. But this simplicity is deceptive. Tetris requires quick thinking, strategic planning, and nimble fingers. It's a game that's easy to pick up, but difficult to master, making it incredibly addictive. This addictive quality is a key part of what makes Tetris so memorable. It's a game that players can lose themselves in for hours, always striving to beat their high score. Tetris was the first game to be compatible with the Game Link cable, allowing for multiplayer gameplay. This was a major innovation at the time, paving the way for the multiplayer games we know and love today. The inclusion of a two-player mode added a new level of competition to the game, making it even more engaging and fun to play. But perhaps the most significant impact of Tetris was its role in launching the Game Boy as a serious platform. The success of Tetris on the Game Boy played a crucial role in creating the handheld gaming market and setting off one of the most successful console franchises of all time. It demonstrated that a game didn't need flashy graphics or complex mechanics to be successful on a handheld device. All it needed was a compelling concept and engaging gameplay. This realization was instrumental in shaping the future of handheld gaming, and it's a testament to the enduring legacy of Tetris. SimCity, the brainchild of Will Wright, marked the beginning of a new genre in video games, allowing players to design and build their own city without specific goals to achieve. One of the most fascinating aspects of SimCity is its open-ended gameplay. Unlike most games of its time, SimCity didn't have a specific end goal or a linear storyline. 
Instead, it gave players the freedom to design and build their own city, making decisions about zoning, infrastructure, and city services. This level of freedom was unprecedented in video games at the time and set the stage for the sandbox games we know and love today. SimCity features disasters including floods, tornadoes, fires, earthquakes, and monster attacks, forcing players to think on their feet and make quick decisions to save their city. This added a layer of realism and unpredictability to the game, making it more engaging and immersive. SimCity was initially rejected by game publishers due to its lack of arcade or action elements. However, positive feedback from the gaming press boosted its sales and led to its success. This marked a shift in the gaming industry, showing that games didn't need to be action-packed to be successful. They could be thoughtful, strategic, and even educational. SimCity's success also led to the creation of a new genre of video games, urban simulation. This genre has since grown and evolved, leading to games like City Skylines and the Anno series, but it all started with SimCity. The game also marked the beginning of publisher Maxi's tradition of producing non-linear simulation games, leading to other popular titles like The Sims. Prince of Persia is a cinematic platformer that not only captivated players with its engaging gameplay, but also revolutionized the gaming industry with its innovative design and animation techniques. The game's creator, Jordan Mechner, used a technique called rotoscoping, where the movements of the characters were traced from live-action footage. This gave the game a unique and realistic look that was unlike anything else at the time. This level of realism in animation was unprecedented in video games and say new standard for future games. It's a testament to Mechner's innovative spirit and his commitment to pushing boundaries of what was possible in video games. Set in medieval Persia, players control an unnamed protagonist who must venture through a series of dungeons to defeat the evil Grand Vizier Jafar and save an imprisoned princess. This narrative-driven gameplay was a departure from the arcade-style games that were popular at the time, offering players a more immersive and story-driven experience. This emphasis on narrative would become a defining characteristic of many games in the future, marking a shift in the gaming industry towards more story-driven experiences. Despite not being an immediate commercial success, Prince of Persia sold many copies as it was ported to a wide range of platforms after the original original Apple II release. Its critical acclaim and eventual commercial success showed that innovative, narrative-driven games could be successful, paving the way for future games in the cinematic platformer genre. Mother, known outside of Japan as Earthbound Beginnings, developed by Ape and Paxsoftnica and published by Nintendo for the Famicom, was a breath of fresh air in the gaming industry. One of the most fascinating aspects of Mother is its setting. Unlike its fantasy genre contemporaries, Mother is set in a slightly offbeat late 20th century United States. This was a bold move by the game's creator, Shigesato Itoi, who wanted to create a game that was both familiar and strange. This setting gave the game a unique flavor that set it apart from other games of the time. It was a refreshing change from the typical fantasy settings of other RPGs, and it gave players a world that was both recognizable and intriguingly different. Inspired by the American comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, Itoi wanted to create the game that was both funny and heartwarming. This sense of humor is evident in the game's parody of RPG tropes, which were prevalent in the Dragon Quest series. This playful approach to the genre was a breath of fresh air, and it added a layer of charm and personality to the game that was distinct 
distinctly its own. The game's soundtrack was composed by Kaichi Suzuki, who is also known for composing the soundtracks of other popular video games, such as Metroid, Kid Icarus, and Animal Crossing. Suzuki's music is iconic and instantly recognizable, and has helped to make Mother one of the most beloved video game soundtracks of all time. The music of Mother is not just background noise, it's an integral part of the game's identity and experience. Golden Axe, with its blend of fantasy, action, and cooperative play, was a sensation in the arcade scene. The game's setting and narrative were striking, taking place in the fantastical land of Yuria, under the tyrannical rule of Death Adder, who wields the titular Golden Axe. This narrative setup, while simple, was effective in immersing players in the game's world. It gave players a clear goal and a villain to despise, which was a driving force behind the game's addictive gameplay. The game offered players a choice of three different characters, each with their own unique abilities and playstyles. This gave the game a level of depth and replayability that was rare for arcade games at the time. Moreover, the game introduced the concept of riding steeds known as Bizarrians, which added another layer of strategy to the game's combat. Golden Axe was not just a commercial success, it also spawned an entire franchise consisting of several sequels and various spin-offs. This is a testament to the game's enduring appeal and impact on the game industry. It's not just a game, it's a franchise that has left a lasting mark on the world of video games. Interestingly, Golden Axe was part of Sega's attempt to create a mascot, a common strategy in 1989 to build brand identity and drive sales of toys and other children's merchandise. Mascots were seen as essential to brand building, leading to Sega's attempts with characters in games like Alex Kidd and Altered Beast. However, despite its success, Golden Axe failed to establish a character that could serve as a mascot for Sega. This was a time when everything had mascots, from breakfast cereals to television shows, as they were seen as a key way to connect with and engage the audience. Despite this, Golden Axe's enduring appeal lies not in a single mascot character, but in its immersive world, engaging gameplay, and memorable music. Ease 2, released in 1988, was a direct continuation of its predecessor, picking up right where Ease 1 left off. This seamless transition was a novel concept at the time, and it allowed for a level of narrative continuity that was rare in games of that era. But Ease 2 didn't just rest on the laurels of its predecessor, it introduced a new magic system that added a layer of strategic depth to the combat, and it expanded on the bump combat system that had made the first game so unique. This was a game that was not afraid to innovate, and it set the stage for what was to come. Interestingly, East 2 also faced criticism for its ending, which was considered abrupt because the game was too large to fit into a single release. This was an uncommon issue at the time, and it's reminiscent of the challenges faced by later games like Sonic and Knuckles. The following year, East 3 Wanderers from Ease hit the scene, and it was clear from the get-go that this was a game that was not afraid to shake things up. The game shifted from the top-down perspective of the previous games to a side-scrolling view, a bold move that fundamentally changed the way the game was played. This change was met with mixed reactions, but there's no denying that it set Ease 3 apart from its predecessors and its contemporaries. But perhaps the most significant aspect of East 3 was its narrative. The game's story was darker 
and more complex than those of the previous games, with a focus on themes of sacrifice and redemption. This was a game that wasn't afraid to tackle heavy topics, and it did so with a level of maturity and sophistication that was rare for games of that time. But the E-Series didn't just make waves in the realm of gameplay and narrative, it was also a pioneer in terms of multimedia expansion. The series spawned a number of spin-offs and adaptations, including a cartoon show and mobile games. This was at a time when the idea of expanding a game into other forms of media was still a relatively new concept, and the E-Series was at the forefront of this trend. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>